So if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 18. All right, if you don't have a Bible and need one, I would encourage you to raise your hand. We have red ones on the back table. Those are free for you to take. Uh, not only to use for today, but if you don't have your own Bible and need one or would like a new one, uh, feel free to keep that. That's our gift to you. Uh, we value God's Word, and so we think it's important that you have uh, your own copy to read on a, a daily and weekly basis. All right, so if you're wondering why we had two podiums up here, and if you're wondering who this is up here with me, uh, this is my fiance Alexa. So, <laughs> so 13 days from now, we're getting married. So I thought, I knew I was preaching today. I thought, what better way to introduce her to the church she's going to be a member of and a serving member than to allow her to do this with me. So uh, she's a gifted speaker herself, so I wouldn't have asked her to do this if she wasn't comfortable. And um, So if you're wondering, that's who uh, this is. Uh, so we're going to see how this works out today. Hopefully it works out well, kind of tag-teaming this. Um, but Luke chapter 18, and hopefully you're there by now. We're in, again, chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Uh, so if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. And Luke is in the New Testament. It's one of the four uh, Gospels. So it's one of the four accounts uh, where it's talking about Jesus, about his life, about the events of his life. Um, and so this is what the book of Luke is. It's telling us about uh, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, so Luke 18 is the middle of uh, Jesus' life. And then Jesus says this in Luke 18, starting in verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. I was never one for following rules. In fact, growing up, if my mother told me not to do something, I was probably still going to do it, even if it did get me into trouble. But then I started to realize that my breaking these rules, I was being left out of things. I wasn't the, being the one chosen to go up to the synagogue or being asked to serve meals, but rather it was my friends. On top of that, I realized that breaking all of these rules would render me unacceptable to God. And so it was then that I decided to make a change. I decided from that moment on that I was going to be the best person that I could be so that I would be looked upon well by others and accepted by God. I grew up going to the synagogue with my parents. I knew right from wrong. I knew what a good person was supposed to look like. And so that became my goal. I was tired of being looked down upon by my friends my teachers, and my parents. And I was t tired of being left out. As a young Jewish boy, it, was never, it never crossed my mind that I might end up a Pharisee, especially with the choices I was making. But with my new plan of becoming a good person in mind, I started to toss around the idea of being a Pharisee. If anyone could make themselves right with God, it was the Pharisees. However, becoming a Pharisee was no easy task. To become a Pharisee, a man from his boyhood had to go through rigorous training. As a young boy, as young boys were required to memorize the five books of Moses and then begin the study of Mishnah and the Talmud. We also had to practice demanding rituals such as fasting and bathing up to three times a day. It wasn't easy, that's for sure. I got made fun of by my friends. Goody two-shoes is what they would call me. 
and often taunt me as I would make my way home from the synagogue or school. I never let it bother me, though, because I knew I was doing the right thing. I was following the rules and obeying God's law to a T. And gradually, as I continued to study and learn from elder Pharisees, it became much more than just a goal that I had set for myself when I was younger. It became a way of life. I no longer wanted to break any rules or rebel against what my mother said, what my mother would tell me, because I knew that I had achieved the status that I was going for. And eventually, I became a Pharisee. I was able to be among brothers, who were also good people. And I finally felt I had achieved my goal. I, the rebellious, boisterous young lad who had once run rampant through the streets of Jerusalem, was now a member of the most distinguished Jewish sect. I observed both the traditional and written laws to the utmost meanings, and I had achieved superior sanctity. I am finally a good person. Look what I did to get here. I might have broke the rules before, but with a little discipline and hard work, I finally achieved it. Surely, if anyone is righteous enough to be accepted by God, it is I. And so this is how I live my life. I follow the rules and I do good. There are some things that we as Pharisees are required to do, but most of the time I go above and beyond them in effort to reach a new level of righteousness. I often find myself at the temple each day praying the prayers I learned as a young boy. And And though the law only requires us to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, I often choose to fast twice a week. And we only have to give a tithe from our crops, but I tithe everything. I've never regretted this choice I made as a little boy to pursue this lifestyle. In fact, I am glad I made this choice. As I pass people on the streets, I am glad I'm not like the other men. I'm glad that I'm not a corrupt extortioner. I'm glad that I treat people fairly and according to justice. And I, unlike many others, have stayed faithful to my wife. And I'm glad that I'm not dishonest like the tax collectors that come pounding on our doors demanding more than they deserve. I mean, look at him over there, beating himself like that is going to make him right with God. And so the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, I never wanted to end up like this. I never wanted to be the one that cheated other people out of their money, the one that was hated by society, the one that people avoided, but it just happened over time, little by little. My mother would be ashamed of me now if she was still alive. She didn't raise me to be dishonest. In fact, she raised me just the opposite. I remember as a young boy having to run to keep up with her as we made our way up to the temple for worship. I always enjoyed going with her on those days. I liked watching the way she worshipped. It was a side of her I didn't see at home. She came each week with little that she had and gave it willingly. She came because she knew she was unworthy and in great need of God's mercy. But as I started to grow older, these trips to the temple with her became less frequent. I started to choose spending time with my friends over going to worship with my mom. She never said anything about it, but I could tell that she was disappointed. She also never asked what my friends and I did together, which was a good thing, because I would have gotten into trouble had I told her. We used to hide in the alleys, and when someone walking alone would pass by, we'd sneak up behind them and steal anything they might be carrying. It was quite easy, actually, and they never seemed to notice. Whoever did the job, got the majority of the loot, but then we split up the remainder. 
We could do whatever we wanted with what we got. I just saved mine. I never knew when I might need to buy something. But in the back of my mind, I think I was keeping it because I wanted to be able to provide for my mother if she needed it. And so I just kept doing what I was good at. And when I got recruited to be a tax collector, I said yes. I never meant for it to get out of hand. It didn't happen right away. But it started to get worse once my mother got sick. With my father gone, I knew it was my job to take care of her. My job as a tax collector is to collect the, collect the certain amount that each person owes to the Roman government. But no one was watching me. So it was easy to demand just a little bit more. Once I got married, I started to go back to the temple again with my wife this time. But this time, it wasn't truly to worship, but more to ease my guilty conscience. I even started attending synagogue with my wife, but even then, it was only to ease the guilt that I was feeling. But today, something changed. I was at the synagogue with my family, and the rabbi was reading from the prophet Isaiah. He read a passage that I had heard a number of times before, but this time, I heard it differently. When I had read this passage, heard this passage before, I'd always thought of it as someone else's experience. I would hear it read, and I would think to myself, that's nice, but that's about it. But what I heard today was completely different. When I heard this passage read this time, it wasn't just a far-off story of someone else's experience. It was my experience. I was confronted with the majesty of God's holiness, and as I felt the weight of God's holiness pressing in on me, I suddenly realized that I, like the prophet Isaiah, was a lost man and a man of unclean lips. All at once, I felt the depth of my wickedness and the intensity of my guilt before God, and I realized that my religious attempts to ease my conscience could do nothing to relieve my immense guilt before God. As I walked out of the synagogue, I told my wife that I would meet her at home, and I headed up to the temple. I needed some time to reflect on what I had just experienced. I found a spot away from all the others there, and I just stood there. I couldn't even bring myself to look up to the heavens. I felt guilty inadequate to even be in the house of the Lord. All that I could bring myself to do was beat my chest and cry over and over, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Today, I walked home a new man. In this passage, Jesus holds up two very different people, and he contrasts them. All right, and so one, the first man, is an upright uh, church-going man, right? He's a well-respected man, a religious man. He prays, he reads his Bible, he gives money to his church, he does, he does good things. He's an altogether good and decent man. And so surely if anyone is to be an example of, uh, to us of what it is to be a Christian, it's this man. But the second man is the polar opposite of the first man. Unlike the first man, he's an indecent man. He extorts money, he's dishonest, he's greedy. He's a downright indecent, bad man. He's widely disrespected by his community, looked down upon by those closest to him. And so if anyone is to be an example to us of what it is not to be a Christian, then surely it's this man. Now, church, let me ask you this. As those Alexa gave those two first-person monologues from the perspectives of those two men, with which man did you find yourself identifying most? With which man did you find yourself thinking, that's me? 
I'm like that guy right there. That's me. Which person did you find yourself identifying with? Now, the great irony of this passage and of this parable that Jesus is telling lies in verse 14. So look with me there in verse 14. So after telling about these two men, Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, this man, speaking about the second man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. All right, the word justify in this context means, as it most often does in the New Testament, to be declared right with God, is to be given righteous standing with him, and so do, to be declared right with him uh, for now and for all eternity. That's what the word justify means. That's how Jesus is using it here. And so what Jesus is telling us is that the second man, this bad man, this indecent man, left the temple that day justified, right with God, but the first man didn't. And Jesus surely meant to shock his audience with these words, and he surely means to shock us with them today. I mean, just think about this. What is going on here? How can this be? This makes no sense. How can Jesus himself pronounce this good, good, well-respected, well-thought-of man to be not right with God, says he did not leave that place right with God. However, the second man, the bad man, was. He was justified. How? Why? This makes no sense. This runs against everything that we think. And so the answer to this question lies in two places. And so the answer as to why the first man, the Pharisee, was not right before God lies in the first verse of this passage, verse 9. So look with me there. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. All right, that's the answer to the first question. How could this, this Pharisee, this good man, this decent, well-respected man, not be justified, declared right with God? Jesus tells us is because he was self Righteous. He was telling this parable to some people who were self-righteous. Right? So he was, he was picturing the self-righteous people in front of him, and he essentially was telling this story, aiming it directly at those self-righteous people. And so he tells us what the problem is with the, with the first man, the Pharisee. He trusted in himself that he was righteous. If you're in here today and you call yourself a Christian, what would you say if I asked you, what is it that makes you a Christian? What would you say? Well, what might your answer be? Would you respond with, I read the Bible, or I do what the Bible says? Might your answer be something along the lines of, I go to church? Or would you reply with, I don't just go to church, but I help out there. I teach kids, I set up chairs, I play music. Or would you reply to that question by saying, I pray to God? In fact, I pray a lot. I say a prayer when I get up in the morning, before I eat my meals, before I go to bed. Or would you say, I give my money to the church? Not just a little, but a lot, actually. Or might you say, I'm a good person. I don't cheat on my spouse. I work hard at my job. I treat people fairly, use my money wisely, and I am nice to people. If you look at this passage and all of these things were true of the Pharisee who Jesus said was rejected by God. 
The Pharisee's problem was not that he was doing these things. These things are good things. His problem was that he was trusting in these things to give him righteous standing before God. He was trusting in himself and the things he could do. And so if you're in here today and you are doing these these things, which in fact are good things and we all should be doing these things, but trusting in them for your righteousness, then your fate is the same as the Pharisees in this parable. If you have trusted only in yourself that you are righteous, then you have not been justified before God. I'm going to read from Romans 3.20. That says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human beings, not the Pharisees, not any of us will be justified in God's sight by doing good works. To trust in our own good works and righteousness for our salvation is utter foolishness. You can be a moral, upstanding person and still be a child of God's wrath. And so that's the answer as to why the Pharisee was not saved. As to why he left that place not justified. No human being will be justified by works of the law. Not the Pharisee, not any of us. And this is the, the clear message of the Bible from front to back. That no human being will be justified, made right with God by works of the law. And so that's why the Pharisee was not justified before God. So the second question then is, how then was the tax collector justified? How was he declared to be righteous before God? How was he given right standing with God while the Pharisee wasn't? Obviously, it wasn't because he was a better person. I mean, he was clearly a much worse, immoral person. And the New Testament and really all of the Bible, again, answers this question in the same way from front to back. And so stay in Romans 3 if you're there. If you haven't turned there, I would encourage you, turn to Romans 3 now. Uh, Because in Romans 3, the Apostle Paul answers this question as to not only why the Pharisee was not saved, but why this tax collector, this indecent, immoral man, was saved. And so Alexa just read Romans 3, verse 20. And this is just a few verses down, verses 23 through 25. The same line of argument here that, that the Apostle Paul is making. And so after in verse 20, he says, no human being will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. That just begs us to ask the question, how then may we be justified in God's sight if not by good works? Right? This is the, this is the argument Paul is making throughout the first three chapters of the book of Romans. His whole conclusion is that all men are sinful, all men are separated from God, and we can't be justified by works of the law. And so the, again, this begs the question, how then may we be justified? if not by works of the law. And so down in verse 23, he says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The tax collector recognized this. He knew this. He was well aware. He didn't need anybody to tell him. he, He was well aware how short of God's glory he had fallen. He knew he was a sinner. He saw God's glory, recognized it for what it was, recognized how short of it he had fallen. 
And so must we. Because the truth is, we're all the tax collector from Luke 18. Right, every single one of us must recognize that we are sinful beyond measure and that we are in desperate need of God's saving mercy. You see, the Pharisee's problem uh, wasn't that he hadn't fallen short of the glory of God. The Pharisee's problem was that Romans 3.23 was true of him, but he wasn't able to see it. Right, he thought he was righteous, but he failed to see how short of God's glory he had fallen. Now, he looks really good on the outside. He kind of covered up his own wickedness, his own unrighteousness by doing good things and kind of uh, becoming what Jesus would also call the Pharisees a, a whitewashed tomb. Looks really good and white on the outside, but inside was full of uh, death and decay. And so he looked good on the outside, but on the inside, his heart, just as sinful as the tax collectors, Right, he had fallen just as short of the glory of God as the, Pharise- as the tax collector had. And so his problem was that he failed to realize this. Instead, he chose to trust in his own righteousness, thinking that that would compensate for his sin and for his falling short of the glory of God. And so we're all the tax collector. Right. Every single one of us in here, sin has touched and tainted every facet of our being. So much so that left to ourselves, we have no inclination towards God. We are all children of wrath, and we are all destined for hell. Right. This is what the scriptures say. Not politically correct, but... And so we're all the tax collector. We are all in desperate need of God's saving mercy. And that's exactly what God gives us in Jesus. And so Romans 3, 24, 25 says this. So all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, there's that word again, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right, there, he just, just answered the question. How then may we be justified? How was the tax collector justified? How can we be justified in God's sight? Just answered it. Not by, God, not by our own good works. He says, are justified as a gift by his grace. All right, we can do nothing in ourselves to merit justification. We can do nothing in ourselves to merit right standing with God. It's strictly from God's grace given as a gift. And this gift is received when we, by faith, receive Jesus. All right, look at verse 25. He said, We're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All right, so this gift, the gift this gift of justification, right standing with God, is given, it's given by God on it, that status is pronounced over us when we, in faith, receive Jesus. And so what is it to receive Jesus? It's quite simply to trade in your filthy unrighteousness for his perfect righteousness. It's to receive him as the all-satisfying Lord of your life. Right? So we simply receive him in faith. And when we do that, we will be justified. That's why the tax collector was justified in Luke 18. 
If you're in here and you're a Christian, that's why you were justified. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, that's how and why you too can be justified and will be justified if you, by faith, receive Jesus. And God can do this because Jesus has propitiated his wrath. Right, that's that big word in verse 25. He says, when whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And what that means is this, is that Jesus has diverted the wrath of God that we were due. All right, your sinfulness, my sinfulness, the sinfulness of the tax collector was we were, we were due the wrath for that, right? God being just, right, and holy could not allow that sin to go unpunished. And so he must punish it. The good news is that Jesus on the cross, our sin, my sin, the sin of the tax collector was credited to him and diverted from us. Not only that, but when we receive Jesus by faith, his righteousness is credited to us. And so look at verse 23. Again, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That was credited to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus was punished on our behalf for our sinning and falling short of the glory of God. Jesus being a propitiation also means, you know who didn't sin? You know who didn't fall short of the glory of God? Who lived a perfect life of righteousness to the glory of God? Jesus. The fact that he was a propitiation means that when we receive him by faith, his glorious, perfect, righteous life is credited to us. And so we receive him by faith. We are justified. We've all accrued an insurmountable debt before God. But Jesus not only has paid that debt for us, he has also filled our bank account, so to speak, with his righteousness. And so if you receive Jesus by faith, your infinite debt will be paid and your bank account will be filled with the perfect righteousness of Christ. You will be justified. This is the good news of the gospel. That we can be justified, declared right with God, not by our works, but simply by receiving in faith Jesus as our Savior. Now, this may seem like an odd sermon to send our seniors off on Senior Sunday. Seniors or parents of seniors, perhaps you are expecting a, really, a word of really practical advice for your life after high school. Perhaps you're expecting a Christianized, pumped-up speech or a positive, encouraging word that you can do it, and you can make it as a Christian in college. Or perhaps you're expecting words of wisdom to carry you off into the sunset. But as Landon and I were thinking and talking about what we wanted to tell you before we send you off, we decided on this. We decided to come back to the truth of the gospel. Because if there's one thing, one piece of advice that we could give you, it is this. Root yourself deeply in the gospel. Become a student of it. Center your life in it. As we were preparing for this sermon, we stumbled upon an article with the title, Why Our Teens Don't Know They Need Jesus. That article was about how many Christian teenagers center their Christian lives around being a good person rather than centering their lives around the gospel. At one point, the article says this, Without being rooted in the centrality of the gospel, our teens don't have the gospel glasses to rightly interpret life. They are ill-equipped to deal honestly with sin and don't understand how desperately they need Jesus. Let me repeat that. Without being rooted in the centrality of the gospel, our teens don't have the gospel glasses to rightly interpret life. They are ill-equipped to deal honestly with sin 
and don't understand how desperately they need Jesus. Seniors and adults, for that matter, if you are not rooted in the centrality of the gospel, then you are ill-equipped for the life that's ahead of you. You are ill-equipped to fight against temptation when it comes, and it will come. If you are not rooted in the gospel, then you'll simply try to follow a Christian do's and don'ts list instead of understanding that you've died to sin and been raised to new life in Christ so that sin no longer has dominion over you. You are ill-equipped to deal with sin when you're already stuck in it or after you've done it. If you're not rooted in the gospel, you won't understand that when you screw up, you don't have to run away from God in fear, but you can run to him because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You won't understand that when you sin, you don't have to fear God, but you can go to him as a loving father who is eager to restore you. You are ill-equipped to deal with troubles and trials of this life. If you are not rooted in the gospel, you won't understand that the suffering of this time is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to you. You won't understand that this light, momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. So graduating seniors, the best piece of advice and the highest wisdom that we can give you is to root yourself in the centrality of the gospel. And so seniors, again, we chose to talk about this is because we wanted to uh, reiterate for you especially, but for uh, the congregation as a whole, that the gospel is not be a good person so that God will accept you. Right? Jesus didn't come to make bad people into good people. He didn't come to merely modify behavior and make us act more Christianly, so to speak. Right? That's not the gospel. The gospel is not try to be a good person. The gospel is you're not a good person. Jesus was a good person on your behalf. And so now you're accepted by God, not by what you've done or can do, but by what he's done. Right? The gospel is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Right? You had nothing to bring to the table. You were dead in your sins. You were a child of wrath. You had no righteousness on your own. You had no inclination towards God. You had absolutely nothing in yourself that would commend you to God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we have been saved. Right? This is what Pastor Rex preached on a couple weeks ago. When he said, he used that funeral procession in one of the Gospels. And Jesus stopped the funeral procession and raised the dead man to life. Right? He made the point, and it was incredible, that we are all the, that guy in the funeral procession all dead in a casket. Jesus stops, meets us, raises us to life. This is, that's what Jesus does to all of us. That's a gospel picture of what Jesus does for us. Right, and so that is the gospel. God has shown us radical grace in Christ. And this radical grace demands a radical response. And so the Christian life is meant to be lived as a response to this radical grace. 
The Christian life, listen, the, the Christian life isn't try really hard to be a good person. That's not what it is to be a Christian. All right, the Christian life is I have been born again to a new and living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, the Apostle Peter said that. The Christian life is I am in Christ, and because I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. All right, I'm, not just, I'm not just a better person. I'm a new creation. All right, that's 2 Corinthians 5. The Christian life is I have counted everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Right, that's 2 Corinthians chapter, actually, that's Philippians chapter 3. Excuse me. I make mistakes too, see? We're all sinners, all falling short. And, and so this is the Christian life. It's not just try to act good and just be a good person. It's no, I understand I've been bought with a price. I now belong to Christ. My life is now a radical response to the radical grace that God has extended to me in Christ Jesus. And so, seniors, if you get this, if you understand the gospel, if you understand the radical grace that God has shown you in Christ, you will be just fine. I promise you that. Not, I don't just promise that. God promises you that. Because he has promised to keep all those who trust in him for salvation. And so you'll run into tough times. We can both attest to that from college and post-high school. It's extremely difficult. But if you understand these things and you understand the gospel, you'll be fine. You'll be able to take anything this is the Apostle Paul. You couldn't, you couldn't touch him. You could imprison him. He, he just converted all the guards, and he was singing hymns. They, tried, you know, they said, all right, we'll put you to death. He said, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Paul understood the gospel better than any of us do, and you couldn't touch the guy. He suffered more than any of us, and, the, I mean, the dude didn't care. He handled it all because he understood the gospel. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, I'm afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in my body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in my body. And we'll tell you that in college and post-high school, even now, as you adults can testify to, man, I felt this way. I've been afflicted, I've been perplexed, I've been persecuted, I've been struck down. And seniors, you will be too. If you understand the gospel, you'll be able to say with the Apostle Paul, you're afflicted, but you're not crushed. You'll be perplexed, but not driven to despair. You'll be persecuted, but not forsaken. You'll be struck down, but never destroyed always carrying in your death the body of Jesus so that in your body the life of Jesus may also be manifested in you. And so seniors and all the rest of you in here today, for that matter, we would remind you of the gospel. That's why I gave you that book I gave you. It's called Gospel Formed. Right? It brings you back to the gospel. It brings it back to the forefront of your mind and of your life. And so two things I want to say before we close. And the first thing is this. 
If you truly understand the gospel, you are truly a Christian who's been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then you will gradually become a more moral and upstanding person. Right? If you're in Christ, you are a new creation, and your life will gradually begin to look like the new creation that it is. And, and so good works in the Bible are always pictured as the fruit of salvation, but never as the root of it. Right? Good works are always the fruit of our salvation, but never the root. Christ is the root of our salvation. And when we root ourselves in him, he saves us. He will begin to bear gospel fruit through our lives. And so if you're in here and you are a Christian, yes, go be a good person. Right? Do good deeds. Right? Help old ladies across the street. Go volunteer in soup kitchens. Go on mission trips. Build houses. Do whatever you will. Be the best, most moral person on your college campus. Right? Adults, be the best and most moral person in your jobs in every area of your life. But do so knowing that those good works have not saved you. They cannot save you. They will not save you. But knowing that they are the fruit of the work that has been wrought in your heart through the Holy Spirit by believing in Jesus. And so go live a radically transformed life. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward in closing. I can tell you personally, I lived the first 16 or 17 years of my life just believing the, the be a good person lie. And I was, I was like the Pharisees, I was pretty good at it. I looked pretty good on the outside. But I didn't know Christ. And when it came down to it, I was trusting in my own self-righteousness for my salvation. And now since then, I can tell you, I may look the same some ways as I did before that time. I am not the same person. My life has been radically transformed by the radical grace of the gospel. And so will yours be. You will become a more moral, better, upstanding person, all of those things, as a believer in Christ. But that is the fruit of your salvation. And the second and final thing I want to say is this. And so for some of you in here, this might be the first time you've heard this good news of the gospel. Maybe maybe the first time you've heard it, and that's okay, because you've heard it now. Others of you, you may have heard this before, but now for the first time, it's clicked and you get it, right? This was me for the longest time. I heard it, heard it all the time. But it didn't click until about my junior year of high school. And I got it. And like I said, first time in my life, grown up in church, called myself a Christian, heard the gospel, believed it for the first time, right? Born again, right? Radically transformed my life. And so others of you, that may be you. So maybe you're in this room and you've called yourself a Christian, but you've realized that all this time you've only been trusting in your own self-righteousness and in your own good works, just as the Pharisee was in Jesus' parable in Luke 18. So if you fall into any of those categories, I would plead with you in this moment, right, to do what the tax collector did. 
right? Entrust yourself to the mercy and grace of God. Cry out for him to save you. And he will, right? Romans 10 says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Your own righteousness and good works cannot save you. They will not save you. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest American preachers of all time, was right in the middle of revival across the, the country in the 1700s. So you may have heard of the sermon, but it's a, sinner, it's a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I know it sounds really fire and brimstone, but, but he said this in the sermon and excuse his archaic language. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. In your healthy constitution, in your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. So to summarize that for you in simpler terms, we are all so sinful and desperately wicked and in need of God's saving mercy that even our, our best deeds can no more save us than a spider web can stop a falling rock. Tim Keller, a pastor and a theologian from Manhattan, uh, is well known for saying this. He says that the gospel says that we are far more wicked and evil than we would ever dare to imagine, but it also says that we are far more loved and accepted than we would ever dare to imagine. We're all more wicked than we even know right now. But the gospel says that we are far more loved than we would ever imagine. And so the bad news is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The good news of the gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so if you're in here today, we would just plead with you, trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Throw yourself onto the mercy and grace of God. Exchange your filthy unrighteousness for his perfect righteousness. That's what the tax collector did in Luke 18. And he went home justified. He left that place right with God for that moment, for all eternity. So will you. You too will go home justified if you receive Jesus in faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. For God, we know that even while we were still sinners, you made us alive in Christ Jesus. God, we've done nothing but earn your wrath. But yet you've made a way for us to be saved. God, you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. And so, Father, bring us back today to the heart of the gospel. Bring it back to the forefront of our minds and to the forefront of our lives. And, Father, I do pray for those people right now who are still trusting in their own righteousness. 
And Father, do the work that only you can do in regenerating hearts and lives. And may today be the day of salvation. And Father, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have believed, we have been saved and justified, Father, help our lives to be lived as a radical response to this radical grace. Lord, the only proper response to this good news is worship. And so, God, as we sing, may we worship you like we've never worshipped you before. And, Father, I do pray specifically for our seniors now. God, that you would root them deeply in the gospel. That you would bear fruit through them on their college campuses. God, that their lives would be so radically transformed by your gospel that people would be drawn to them and drawn more importantly to you. Father, we thank you, we love you, and we draw near to you now by the blood of Jesus. It's in his name we pray.